Mac Power Users, Episode 12, Troubleshooting. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, along with my co-host, David Sparks. How are you doing this evening, David? Fantastic, Katie. Thanks for asking. Yeah, we are just cranking these shows out. It feels like we've been doing this for a while now, but episode 12, hmm. Well, we're getting there. We are getting there. Um, this is a topic that I think, I hope, will be of help to everybody because, um, you know, whether you're a Mac power user or whether you're still working on getting there, because troubleshooting is something that I still think has a little voodoo to it. And I think different people with different methods go about it different ways. And maybe there's really no right or wrong way to troubleshoot a problem that you're having on the Mac, but I guess it doesn't hurt to hear what methods other people use. Yeah, and you know there is something to learn uh, from from tried and true methods. Though I, I believe there is a bit of a methodology to it. So hopefully this uh, show will help people get some ideas of where to go with that. Right. So um, I guess let's uh, let's dive right in because we have a lot of content to cover. So the first thing that I tell people, and it's not always as obvious as you think is you have to figure out what type of problem you're dealing with. And the first step with that is, is it a hardware or a software problem? Yeah, and there, sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes you have a, uh, you know, a screen that's cracked or a battery that's swelling or one particular key on your keyboard that doesn't work. But sometimes it's not so obvious. Even that can be not so obvious. One time I had a, the command key go bad. And uh, it took me a while to figure out. I thought my keyboard shortcuts were broken. It took me a while to figure yeah, out that if I tried the, the command key on the opposite side of the space bar, everything worked just fine. Mm, I don't think I could do that. I never used the command key on the right side of the space bar. Yeah, it was out of desperation that I figured that out. Uh, but you're right. So besides looking at your machine, um, I mean, is there really anything you can do to try to troubleshoot whether something is hardware or software? Well, I think hardware generally tends to be obvious with respect to those kinds of problems we talked about already. Uh, then there's the not-so-obvious problems. Uh, and I don't think there is really a whole lot of, of a way to do that automatically. I, for instance, I had a, a USB port go intermittently bad on a Mac once, and it was it was just driving me nuts trying to solve it. And even the Apple Store, they thought it was software. Ultimately, they determined it was hardware. USB and FireWire ports. I think I've had a FireWire port intermittently go bad, and you think it's the cable, you think it's the peripheral, and sometimes it will work and sometimes it won't. Sometimes you'll hear evidence of a problem because there'll be a funny noise coming from your Mac. Clicking is bad. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Excessive fan noise can be bad, too. Excessive fan noise can be bad. Although, I'll, I'll tell you, it's important for people to get some kind of comfort level with what the normal noises are that come from their Mac. Because you may sit down at somebody else's Mac. For example, I was helping a friend um, consolidate some iTunes libraries and do some other stuff over this past week. And I immediately sat down at her Mac, which is a different model from mine, and, and asked her, I said, is this noise normal? There was a, a slightly different pitch to her fan than in my fan, in my MacBook. Because it concerned me, and she said, "No, oh, no, it's it's done that since the day that I got it." That doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. 
That's true. That doesn't necessarily mean it's normal, but the Mac was like three years old and hasn't had any problems. And if you actually go on Apple's support pages, sometimes they've got audio clips of these are all the normal types of sounds that will come from a DVD drive, and, and the sounds are different. If you hear this or this or this, this is all normal. You know, we kind of jumped over it, but what does the clicking sound mean? Why is it so bad? The clicking sound of death is typically coming from a hard drive, and it's typically the sound of the arm on a hard drive smattering your platters and destroying your data every time it ticks. Yeah, you hear the clicking sound, you run for super duper. Well, I don't know. We may talk about that a little bit later. I mean, hopefully you've been doing your back your backups and you have them, but usually I tell people when you hear the clicking sound, stop everything. What are some of the other bad sounds associated with your Mac? Bad sounds. Um, any kind of crackling, any kind of uh, clicking or sticking, any kind of time your Mac continues to make the same noise, like a, a CD drive, or excuse me, a DVD drive, I guess they all are now, if it's continually trying to eject a disc but can't quite seem to catch it. Um, fan noises that are off or different, any kind of buzzing or high-pitched noise is usually not good. So there's really two kinds of hardware problems. There's the obvious kind where something's broken and you can physically see it or hear it. And there's the not-so-obvious problem where you're having some kind of functionality break on your computer uh, intermittently or consistently, and you're not sure if it's actually being caused by hardware failure or the driving software, or even just some particular application you're running. So let's talk a little bit about the software problems. Um, well, one thing you can do, just backing up a bit to hardware, is you can also, I suggest, that people check System Profiler um, and know what should be there. Because I have had occasion, for example, where RAM would go bad and it would stop showing up in the System Profiler or a USB bus or something would go bad and it would stop showing up. So that is one other way to diagnose a potential hardware problem. But I guess that could also be a, a software problem. And then you, you really have to decide, is this software that is specific um, to an application? Is it software that is specific to my user account? Or is it a system-wide problem? Another thing you could do is you could run an XBench-type profile of your system so you get a series of benchmarks as to how fast your video card is running and the various elements inside your computer. And that way, if you suspect there's something going on, you could uh, run a new series of uh, benchmarks and compare that to the healthy set. And that kind of gives you a good idea if you have a hardware problem as well. Well, and that's a good point, is that you do want to have, for lack of a better word, a, a set of control tests that you know, this is when I wasn't experiencing any problems and my Mac seems to be going, you know, normal. This is, this is what's normal for my system. So what do you think about software problems? Software problems typically are much trickier to track down because they're not as obvious and they may occur more intermittently. And perhaps one of the biggest problems to track down or the biggest challenges is whether something is software as in specific to an application or a set of applications or whether it's a system-wide problem. And then for system-wide problems, whether it's specific to one particular user account or the entire system as a whole. Yeah, I think a lot of times people experience a problem when they're running a certain application, you immediately jump to the idea, well, then it's this application is broken. But it might not necessarily be that. It may be tapping into some underlying system 
resource that is just showing an indication of the cause, uh, it's really it really can make you crazy. Right, because one of the beauties about programming for OS X is that the developers have all of these hooks that they can connect into in the underlying operating system. And it could simply be when an application is passing off a call to the OS is when you have problems. And there's ways to get around that. You can create a separate user account and do uh, things like that to kind of create a, a clean lab to try some of these problems out. Well, but, in fact, when we talked about having some kind of control group, that's one of the things that I recommend that people do is, especially after they do a new and pave or set up a new system, to set up that test user account. And, and just don't use it. Keep it clean. Um, you know, don't, when you install third-party applications, tell them to install just for your user account and, and just keep it as clean, as pristine as possible. It makes sense. So, um, so the first question people generally ask themselves is, is the problem repeatable? Um, if you start to notice that every time I invoke this command or every time I do this action, I'm having the same set of issues. And that is usually indicative of a software problem. And it's kind of a relief to me when that happens. <laughs> you know that you're not crazy? Yeah, I mean, what's what's more maddening is when it's not repeatable, when it's intermittent, and one time it'll print just fine, the next time it won't, or whatever the issue is. And uh, so you really don't know what is causing it. At least if you can create the conditions that cause it, that gets you a long way towards figuring out what the, what the issue is. Right. And you know if the issue, if you can repeat it, and if it doesn't occur in a, that clean user account that you have, you know that the issue lies somewhere in your own user account. Yeah. Um, but the other thing I, I think we need to mention, although it, it bothers me to say so, flukes do happen. Um, I, I mean, many a time people spend hours chasing down this random problem that never occurs again. Yeah, and it's kind of a cost-benefit analysis, like everything on a computer. If if you've got something that causes you one second of of problem, don't spend one hour trying to solve it, because it will take you the rest of your lifetime to make that mm-hmm. hour catch up. Well, I, and it also depends on the severity of the problem, I'm sure, as well. Yeah, and, and the, you know, the other thing is, and this is probably getting ahead of ourselves in the outline, Sometimes people just run their Macs for two or three weeks without rebooting them, and right. weird stuff happens. Weird stuff can happen. Always ask people is uh, people will always tell you, "I was just running my Mac and I just did this, and all of a sudden it started doing that, and I didn't do anything." Well, most of the times that's not entirely correct. Most of the time, something has changed, even if you think it's insignificant. Something has changed. Some update has run in the background. You've done something differently. So really try to step back and analyze what has changed on your system in the last hour, the last day, the last week that all of a sudden could potentially be causing you to have this problem. I don't know, Katie. That voice you used, that was kind of sounded kind of bitter. No, it wasn't bitter. So uh, getting back to my comment earlier about running for the backup, do you run for the backup every time? Um, actually, you, I think you have to be very careful with this, which goes back to our backup episode on redundancy. Because when problems do occur, that natural reaction is to immediately back up your data. 
But the problem is, is that by the time a problem has gone on long enough that you're actually having symptoms, you may be too late because the worst thing that could happen is for you to take your good, clean backup and write over it with corrupt data, essentially destroying your good backup with whatever the problem is. Yeah, I'd agree with that. If you only have one backup drive and there's some kind of issue on your computer, you don't want to uh, overwrite that. However, if you have files that have been created since your last backup and things are acting wonky and you think there's a possibility things may get worse, go ahead and back up those individual files that you have worked on since then. So right, there's nothing those. wrong with drag and drop. There's nothing wrong even with burning a DVD or throwing things on a flash drive that, you know, your most important mission critical files that have changed since the last time you did a backup. General troubleshooting steps. Let's kind of walk through it. Okay, well, step one, and I ran into this this past weekend, um, is wait. I had this this strange issue with Safari on certain websites, and I think it was um, this particular website was having issues this weekend where my computer would freeze for somewhere between 30 and 45 seconds after I clicked on a link and just wouldn't do anything. And um, I got distracted. You know, I ended up force quitting Safari two or three times, and the third time it happened, I got distracted and moved on to something else, and when I came back, the problem had resolved. So you especially see this, too, after software updates. Sometimes things take longer than you think, and your computer isn't locked up. It just needs time. So before running to pull the power plug or doing a force quit, consider just waiting until you're sure your computer isn't doing anything. And it's a little more difficult now with these computers that run so quiet and so lean and mean. But, you know, I used to be able to put my hand on my computer or put my ear up against my computer. And still, you can to some degree until whether it was truly locked up or whether it was just doing something. You know, that's sometimes caused by um, aggressive maintenance. You know, these people that blow their caches out every two weeks and then they don't understand why it takes a long time to load a website. Right. Um, so... Yeah, there is a degree of patience involved. Um, a friend of mine, um, who I, I won't disclose, works at an Apple store. And um, although he's he's not a Mac genius, you know, does occasionally give people general tips when they come into the store and come to talk to him. And at one point, he advised someone to repair their permissions, and that apparently resolved their issue. So then that person started taking the tact that, well, if repairing my permission once resolves my issue, then repairing my permissions multiple times a day must be even better. Yeah, well, I mean, people just don't know better, especially if you come from a PC background. You're just used to having to do a bunch of stuff. You know, I think we got an email or a Twitter from someone asking if if they should defrag, and I've never defragged a Mac. No, no, I I haven't either. But so, so so you think you need to be doing these things and you don't know what to do it. In fact, coming from a a lot of PC work that I've done in the past and this isn't just me. I mean, this is people who do this professionally. A lot of them when things start to go wonky to the 
slightest degree on a PC, you just get out the install disks and nuke and pave. I mean, there is no intermediate step. <laughs> and uh, so it's hard to break those habits when you get onto the Mac. But Yeah, it's like a flowchart. If this, then this. If this, nuke and pave. Yeah, it's you, a pretty small flowchart. You get to that very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, another thing you do on your Mac if if things are acting funny is is restart. When you hear these guys who brag about how long they run their Macs without it restarting, I just think it's silly. I just silly. think those people are foolish. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to be honest, I don't restart. I don't go out of my way to really restart my Macs, but probably once a week or so I'll restart them. Yeah, I'm not going 72 days without a restart or anything like that. I mean, unless your Mac is a home server and you're not launching many applications are all to begin with. I mean, there's really a reason that you can't take two minutes to restart it. So it gets stuff in there and you can, you know, kind of blow it out. Um, Sometimes you get, though, stuck because you get that spinning beach ball and the restart doesn't respond to you. I've had that happen before. Yeah, And for that, there's a real nifty terminal command. So sometimes you can actually open apps, but for some reason you can't restart. And uh, there's a terminal command, and I don't think we're going to try and, you know, recite the entire command. Instead, I'm going to link to a great article that was, I think, on Mac OS X, hence, um, in the show notes. But whenever I have that problem, I, I can go in there, and I have restarted it through the terminal before. And if you're really geeky, you can actually log in. Uh, if you've got one of those terminal apps on your iPhone, you can log in and, and run it that way too. But Remotely? Yeah, I've never actually done that, but I know it's possible. The point being is, uh, if you can avoid reaching behind and holding down the big button, that's probably a good thing. Although my understanding is that, and what you're referring to is typically on most Macs, all Macs now I think, holding down that power button for five seconds will force it to power down. Yeah, but you don't know what state it's in. If you can if you can have the, the software run the reboot, I right. think you're no, much I, better off. I definitely agree. Although I have heard, and I don't have any uh, links or citations for you, that if all else fails, holding down that power key is better than just a plain pull the plug. Oh, absolutely. So. I don't think... I don't think pulling the plug on your computer at any point is, or yanking the battery out while it's running, I don't think that's a very good idea. Yeah, we spent hundreds of dollars on surge protectors and uh, battery backups to prevent that from happening. Okay, so uh, I kind of got sidetracked there for a minute. So let's get back to the point where you've got glitchy software. You know, what are the steps that you would take to make sure you don't have a problem? Well, one of the things that I commonly do is I I like to check activity monitor and then more specifically sometimes console for clues as to what's going on because activity monitor, you'll see an item in red if it's, you know, having issues and you can see what kind of processes are happening and what's being spawned off. So that's typically a good way to see, okay, is your computer locked up or is it really just doing something? And then console, I can't tell you how many times random console messages that had no significance and no meaning to me when inputted into a Google search yielded the exact result that I was looking for. Yeah, really, the Google is the third leg of that triumvirate. You know, you get the activity monitor, you watch your console, and you do a Google search in quotes. Right. And you will find all kinds of good information. Maybe I'd add system profiler to that, too. But... 
the uh, when you are running into a problem, if you get especially when you get an, an error code, you know some application says you know error code negative fifty seven point three can't do this and that. Just block and copy that into a Google search within quotes, and you will be amazed how quickly you'll find out if someone else out there had the same problem. Yeah, and more often than not, they do. I had a very obscure issue with my iLife media browser being corrupted, just that one specific piece of iLife. And it was finally the console and finding the console messages that ultimately uh, led me to a solution. So the other thing that may be fairly obvious is to check for software updates. And I mean more than just your system software, although you should definitely keep that up to date. Um, But check for software updates of your installed components, because particularly if you're having an issue with a device that has a driver or having issues with a specific application, sometimes these are known issues, sometimes these are known conflicts, and just updating to the most recent version can fix some of those conflicts. You know, another really good tool to uh, determine what's causing the problem is iStat Menu. At least that's the one I use. I know I think the other one is at Menu Meters. Okay. Or uh, also iStat has a a widget, but I like iStat Menu. And I install that on Macs that I set up for other people, too. And I just limit it to the uh, hard drive space, the memory, and the CPU usage. And you can customize that to actually give vertical bars, so it takes very little room on the menu bar. And even people who don't know a thing about how their Mac works can look at that bar. And I tell them, look up there. If things are running slow, if those two bars are are maxed out at the blue or the gray or whatever color scheme you use, um, then click on it. And in iStat menu, at least, when you click on it, it gives you kind of like a mini activity meter. It shows you the five most active applications. And, uh, you know, even people who really have no interest in computers can look at that and say, oh, it looks to me like uh, Safari or Firefox is using 120% of my computer, and and they know enough to go down and force quit that application. And a lot of times that solves their problems. Right. Now, what if you know that you've recently made changes? You know, you did something, and now all of a sudden you're having these issues. Sometimes it can be easy to roll back to a previous configuration, sometimes not so much. Yeah, it really depends on the application you're talking about and how far it got into the system. On a Macintosh, it's sometimes quite easy because a lot of the apps are self-contained packages, and if you uh, delete them thoroughly, it's an easy step to go back and reinstall even an older version. Uh, It also depends on how it deals with its data library. I mean, if you've got a Mac uh, app and you've updated to a newer version and that newer version modified the library or the data files in some way that they can't go back to the old version, then you're going to have to do a little more work. Now, speaking of thoroughly removing applications, I know you use Hazel, and Hazel has kind of a a built-in checker that when you throw an application or a component of an application into the trash, it will say, I noticed that you're throwing away an application. Do you also want to throw away these related files? Um, Do you use any of these app zapper or app delete or any of those types of programs? You know, a long time ago, I bought a family license for app zapper because it was like 15 bucks for the whole family. You know, so I just said, okay. And, uh, but I haven't used them in a long time because I have been using Hazel since then. And I know there's a free one out there too. I forget the name of it. 
I don't remember. We'll find it and we'll we'll put it in the show notes. So if you can't quite pinpoint the issue, then I think we move on to what I would call the shotgun approach. And this is definitely not the maintenance steps that I would suggest you run regularly. Um, these aren't general maintenance, but I would say these are more troubleshooting steps when you know you have a problem um, that you're trying to resolve. Um, personally, I like to use one of these kind of all-in-one utilities that will do these, but you certainly could run these um, types of troubleshooting steps uh, independently. And that would just kind of you know run through the, the gamut of uh, repairing disk permissions, running your daily, weekly, and monthly cron jobs, deleting and clearing out your system caches, clearing out your internet cache, clearing out your font and your memory cache, updating your pre-binding, and those general kind of troubleshooting steps that you'll, you'll find in, in a general maintenance application. Do you have a preference? Yeah, but you, you're kind of making my head hurt. You're going too fast. I am going. Okay. Okay. I think really what it comes down is, even if you don't know exactly what the problem is, you're going to kind of have an idea what the problem is. Uh, for instance, if, if you've got a lot of problems with your browser, like Safari, you can take a look, and there are certain steps you can take in there. For instance, on Safari, two thing, there's two or three things that it could, could, could quite often be. One would be your caches. I mean, I don't like cleaning out caches unless I have a problem, but when I do have a problem, I have no compunction about wiping them out. And so if you've got a problem with your browser, one of the first steps you can do is just knock out your cache you know, the, the actual Safari browser cache. And I believe that's done within Safari. I right, also, you can do that within Safari, and I believe just about any web browser you can do that. Yeah, and I think you can do it in Onyx. If memory serves, the last time I did it, I did it from within Onyx, which is one yeah, of the free can. apps. And then if that doesn't fix it, then another problem that a lot of Safari users run into is with plugins, you know, because it seems like kind of a love-hate relationship between Apple and plugin developers, where they're really not that friendly to them. Whereas, like, the Firefox developers are really friendly to, to plugins. Right. And uh, sometimes you just start, you know, just take your plugins out of their folder and put them on the desktop so you've removed them from the app, restart, and see if it fixes it. That's why every time you see Apple update Safari, you see a rash of third-party developers updating their applications as well. Yeah, and that's why... Um, uh, the guys over at One Password, every time there's a new version of Safari, they just like clear the decks, and like within an hour, they have a new version. Right. So you know, you can you can try and be kind of smart about the way you do it. Uh, font cache is another cache that seems to often cause people troubles, and especially for some reason with Snow Leopard, when people were doing the upgrade to Snow Leopard, if they were having problems, it seemed that a fair number of people were having problems with fonts. You know, in all the years I've been running Macs, I have never needed to clear out my font cache. Hmm. Do you have a gazillion fonts? Not really. I just use this, the ones that came with the system, and then every year, well, every year as an aside, I like to go to that website where there, I think it's $20 for a font. Um, I think it's comic book fonts. They, so I have a couple that I've purchased, but the uh, overall, I just don't really have that many problems. Yeah. I mean, usually Helvetica does it for me, you know. But anyway, so depending on what you're doing, you can kind of be smart about the way you go through it. Um, if you've got a problem in Safari, I wouldn't recommend necessarily going and blowing out all of your system caches. Right. Uh, now, let's let's switch the, that there. But what if you do have a problem where it seems to be kind of randomly 
giving you beach balls. Well, that's the time you want to blow out all your system caches and see if you can't make something happen there. Right. I'm, I'm glad you stepped me back out to that because I, I did turbo through that. And definitely uh, some of these troubleshooting tips, I would say, are after you have already done your due diligence and trying to isolate the specific problem. Because some of these troubleshooting tips, as you said, you can do very specifically within an application. If you're having trouble with Spotlight, you can rebuild your Spotlight database. Uh, if you're having trouble with fonts, you can rebuild your font cache. If you're having trouble with Safari, you can rebuild your Safari cache. You don't, it's not necessarily all or nothing. Yeah, and it's just like the uh, the Windows guy who jumps for the install disks. You don't necessarily need to you know, wipe out all of your caches because you have a problem. Just try and be smart about, you know, well, what does this problem relate to? And try and knock out the most appropriate cache. And if that doesn't fix it, then you can start getting more extreme. But I always recommend you start with the, uh, the, the what is it, the path of least resistance. Right. And uh, hope that that solves the problem. And quite often it does, in my experience. Right. How, how often do you run, do you ever manually run the cron jobs, you know, the daily, weekly, monthly cron jobs? Mm, usually only when I'm having an issue. My understanding is that since Leopard, I believe, maybe Tiger, it, it used to be that if your machine was not on and awake at, I want to say, 1 a.m. was when these jobs were set to run, that they just didn't run. You were SOL. However, with some of the newer versions of the operating system, if your machine was off or asleep, then these cron jobs would say, it would check and say, okay, I wasn't able to run, so I will put myself back in the queue to be run again. So you're more likely to have those run, whereas if you're the type of person who turn your computer off at night, you know, they're never going to run. Yeah. I used to use um, Cocktail had an option that would it would schedule those for you so that if you knew your computer was off, you could manually schedule them for a time when you knew it was on. And I also used a, um, actually went in and edited the crons from time to time to set them so that those jobs would run, you know, instead of at 1 a.m. at 9 p.m. or another time when I knew that my computer was likely going to be on. Well, um, I used to worry about it because I was running a lot of laptops and you rarely had them on at midnight and I would go in and manually run it and some point in the line, I just realized that I was being silly and I stopped doing it. And I don't think it's really affected me much. I'm hearing in the grapevine that the 10.6.2, when it comes out, is going to move all of that to the boot up. And when you boot up, it's going to check. Launch D is going to check. See when's the last time you ran all those various um, maintenance routines. And if it's due to run one, it'll run it in the background while you're booting up. Oh, does that mean boot-ups are going to take forever? Because that weekly cron job takes a while. I don't think it means it's going to stop the whole system. I just think it's going to run it, and it's probably going to be pretty smart about when it runs it. Oh. Well, we'll that see. might work, as long as it doesn't slow down my boot-up any more than it already has. So, uh, you know, we kind of talked about some problems with Safari or your browser. Um, I don't use Firefox. I, I used to use it a lot. It seems to me that in their um, efforts to become plug-in friendly, it's just become too slow. And, you know, my email, for those who are ready to write me about this and tell me how silly I am, is... <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just, I don't really run it that often. There's a couple websites I need it for, though, because they're not Safari friendly. 
and uh, but it has the same troubleshooting type of steps. It has caches that can be cleaned out, and uh, it can be reset as well. Uh, right. The uh, so th- I think the bigger problem is, and and you know there are other application specific things that need troubleshooting, like iTunes and iPhoto. You can rebuild your your database in those apps if they start getting uh, crufty, for lack of a better word. And sometimes iPhoto will tell you on launch, hey. I need to rebuild this database. Yeah. But, you know, the problems that really uh, are disturbing is where you're just sitting there working and suddenly the beach ball shows up and you're not really sure why. And you'll go up to iStat menu and you'll look and um, there's no obvious explanation why everything is hanging up or why everything is suddenly running slow. And that's when you start getting a little more extreme with uh, blowing out your system caches um, after a reboot, obviously, and, you know, trying some other things. Um, you know, I, you had put a note in the, uh, outline about updating pre-bindings. How often do you do that? Very seldom, yeah. very rarely. Only if I'm specifically having issues with applications launching. Yeah. Will I update my pre-binding? Yeah. And just as a, a general note, some applications will make you do this, some won't. But anytime you do one of these kind of shotgun approaches to troubleshooting your Mac, you always then should restart your computer or shut it down and turn it back on after you've done this because you want to give it a chance to rebuild those libraries and those caches. And when you're ready to go into troubleshooting mode, you should have a magazine or something nearby and just accept the fact that you're going to be doing several reboots. Don't try and skip steps. You know, don't try and... Uh, do five or six different troubleshooting steps and then reboot. I think you're much better off to do one at a time. And this may be complete, um, uh, you know, paranoia on my behalf, but it just seems to me like if you're going to start playing with the innards of the computer, you let it take one step at a time. Right, because otherwise how are you going to know what worked and what didn't? And sometimes knowing what worked and what didn't can help you in your troubleshooting. So the other culprit of a lot of kind of general problems and spinning beach balls can be logon items. And these are things that sometimes can have a tendency to crop up without you even knowing. So one of the easiest way to check and see what's booting on your Mac at login is go into system preferences, into your user account, and then specifically take a look at all the login items. And a lot of times you'll find things that are there for applications that you thought you had gotten rid of and things you don't even use anymore. Yeah, it it can load up pretty fast. And that menu item is kind of deceiving if you look at it because there's a bunch of checkboxes on the left side. And and if you're not reading it, you're thinking, okay, well, the ones that have checks, checks next to them are the ones that are running. But that's yeah. not the way it works. It's just that's actually the hide show status. I remember uh, one time going in there without paying attention and saying, oh, well, I don't have that many items logging in. And then I stopped to read the menus. And I said, oh, wait a second. All of these items are logging in. And, the, you know, because I'm always evaluating software and doing crazy stuff on my Mac, I had uh, support files loading for apps that I hadn't run in a year and a half. Ooh, I just counted mine. I have 13. Yeah. That seems a little high. So to remove them, you actually select the line and you click the little minus sign at the bottom. Correct. And uh, so go through and check those. Another problem that can cause trouble is your keychain. Yes, and it's probably not a bad deal to run keychain first day, uh, first aid every now and again, because sometimes you can have issues with your keychain and not have any 
noticeable symptoms until it's too late and kind of too far down the rabbit hole to fix. Yeah. There is such a thing as keychain first aid though. If you load it up, it has, I think it, I think that's the name of the menu items. It is, right. First aid and it'll go through and try and clean it up for you. Um, yeah, this can also be if you're having permission problems or you, you can't, well, permission problems in a different sense, uh, permission problems is in, you know, it's not accepting your password or your password that you know is the correct password for this particular thing that you're trying to do, or you've always had it remember your password in the past and now it's prompting you for one. Those can all kind of be signs of keychain corruption. Yeah. And another problem that you can run into quite frequently, and this is more specific at one bad app is the P list. Mm. So for each application, you have these preferences and it's saved to this file or a P list file. And if you go into the innards of your system, you'll find all these plists. Well, if something gets corrupt in there, it can cause the application to act funny. And a lot of times, it's just as simple as pulling the plist out of its location, putting it on your desktop, because the application is coded to look at that one place for that for that preference list. And if it's not there, it'll just create a new one the next time you load it, and that will reset everything to the default. You'll lose all your preferences, but it may be the difference between having an app load and an app crash. One of the um, problems, I guess, is that there, unless you use one of these third-party utilities to uninstall applications, is it's easy to have a lot of these plist files floating around for apps that you don't use or you haven't used, um, especially if you don't do clean installs from time to time. Have you ever had the problem where lingering plist files for applications that you don't have installed anymore give you issues? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an easy problem to have. And that's something that um, most people wouldn't think to look for. So, you know, that kind of gets back to, so going back to our overview, if you've got a specific app, you know, nuke the plist and see what happens. Well, you don't even have to nuke it. Just pull it out of the folder and put it on the desktop. If um, that fixes it, you know there was something corrupt. And uh, if it doesn't, you can return your preferences, although I've never actually done that. Usually once I pull them out, I'm afraid to put them back. No, I, I've done that, and it, it works well. I did it with, um, gosh, oh, iTunes. I was having an issue with iTunes, and I pulled my P-lists out, and it did not solve my issue, and it reset everything. Man, I lost my podcasts. I lost you know, all of those settings, and it was like a, I lost my, my playlist. And I said, oh, forget that. I am, it didn't solve my problem. I'm not rebuilding all that data. So yeah. I threw them back in. Really? Uh, See, I thought all that data was in your um, iTunes data file. All right. Well, maybe it wasn't the, the playlist. I don't know what it was. But it, it definitely was problematic enough that it was, it was causing me noticeable problems. Yeah. And I did throw them back in. But now, whenever you're pulling out or putting back in plist, you definitely want to make sure the application is shut down and not running. And if the application has any background processes, that those are shut down as well. And once again, you're troubleshooting, so don't be afraid to restart. Always good advice. Don't be afraid to restart. So kind of um, moving down the chain a little bit, as we, we've talked about some of those more general maintenance tools like Onyx, which is my favorite because it's free. Uh, I know there's Cocktail, Mac Pilot, Mac Janitor, but there are different versions of these maintenance applications for different versions of the operating system. So if you do decide you want to use any of these general maintenance type applications, whether it's 
you know, these lower end Mac applications or more higher end applications like Disk Warrior, Drive Genius, you want to make sure that you are running the appropriate version for your operating system. You can just grab an old CD or DVD or an old version of this and expect it will work with your newer operating system. It's very important that you run the version appropriate to the OS you run. It's just not getting the Mac OS X version. You have to get the Mac OS X Snow Leopard versus the Mac OS X Leopard version of these applications because it's going down to you know the root level and doing all kinds of crazy stuff on your Mac. You do not want to run a command that no longer exists or causes a bunch of damage. And frankly, and using these applications, you need to be really careful. I mean, there's some apps like Automator where you can just go hog wild. You're not going to break anything. If you just start pushing buttons, however, in Onyx, um, you could cause a lot more problems than you'd solve. Right. This is These are the types of applications that if you don't understand what it's asking you or you're not sure what the result of that sequence is going to be, don't do it. I mean, basically what these applications do in a lot of ways is they just put a pretty UI on some very core level terminal commands. And, you know, um, uh, so <laughs> you just have to be real careful. You can cause a lot of trouble. But, you know, that being said, don't be afraid to download it and, and click through the menus. You can actually learn a lot just by seeing what the options are. Right. And I'll tell you, I am usually pretty lenient about putting beta software on my computer or you know, running a test version of a particular application. But again, this is an area I'm not going to be the guinea pig. I'm not going to be running the latest beta. I'm going to be running the last full stable version for my particular OS. Yeah. Well, we haven't talked much about uh, troubleshooting disk problems. Well, because not all disk problems are the disk is dead or the disk isn't, although that's certainly a serious problem. Um, there can be in-betweens. Yeah, there, there can be the disk is going to die. Right. Um, and I'll tell you, this, this first one we have on our list is check the smart status. And this bothers me because I have had that smart status deceive me. I've never had it deceive me and it say a disk is bad when the disk is really good. So don't worry about that. But I've had the smart status tell me that my disk is perfectly fine when I can't turn on my computer. I forget what the acronym stands for, but... As I understand it, the point of SMART is to give you a bit of warning before things go really bad. I'm looking it up right now. but And it can. I mean, if your SMART status says, warning, this drive is failing, you need to take that very, very, very seriously. Self-monitoring, analysis, and reporting technology. Okay. But just because the SMART status tells you your drive is fine and everything is happy doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Do you think they paid them extra to come up with an acronym that spelled SMART? Probably. Yeah. Probably a marketing guy. Yeah. Well, the other thing... It's one more you, indicator. I think that's the way is. you look at it. And if it tells you things are going bad, um, you should probably start thinking about that and take steps. But it, I wouldn't say you should start thinking about it. I would say you should take some steps. Got it. But yeah. that doesn't mean that if it tells you things are good, it doesn't mean your drive's going to not stop tomorrow right or but, you can you know, stop doing backups i guess it's kind of like the little warning light on your dashboard there you go maybe okay so uh what kind of steps can you take uh to uh maintain your disk 
Well, the first thing you can do is from time to time, and I tend to do this especially before major software software updates, is I will verify the disk. And you can do this now from within disk utility. You can actually verify a disk that you're mounted and booted from. But that's probably not the best way to do it. The best way to verify your disk's integrity is um, to reboot from the actual installer DVD and run disk utility from that to confirm that you have a good or a bad install disk. Yeah, the problem people have is uh, in order for a disk to be analyzed, uh, well, that's the old Zen saying, um, can you bite your teeth? You know, your disk, in order for your disk disk to analyze itself, it has to have somewhere else to to look at it from. You know, you can't analyze yourself because it needs those sectors to be analyzed. I think I'm kind of rambling. So it can analyze most, but not all of itself. Oh, and for for real maintenance, you have to be booting from a separate drive. And you can do that a variety of ways. The easiest way is to take that Apple disk that came with your computer and just boot from that. And it's got disk utility built into it. And you can run all the disk um, utility maintenance tools against your your drive because it's not running the computer at that point. The computer is running from the DVD. Well, and usually the fastest way is to do it from an external hard drive, preferably a FireWire drive. Yeah. Which is going to be a lot faster than running it off a DVD. Well, and, and people get frustrated with that because they... You know, getting back to the the starting point is they they try to verify a disk, but it's grayed out, and they don't understand why. And it's because they're trying to verify the disk that they're running. Right. Go ahead. Well, I think you know the other thing we could talk about in relation to disks is uh, Disk Warrior um, and Drive Genius and some of the other disk tools out there. Um, disk Warrior is not cheap; it's a hundred dollars. But for me, it was probably one of the best purchases I've ever made because I do a lot of troubleshooting for friends. You know, I'm informal tech support to a whole circle of people in Southern California. (laughs) And, um, you know, disc warrior has always worked for me when people have disc problems. A lot of times what happens is it's a directory problem and, uh, you know, their directories become corrupt and basically, you know, the, the disc is telling, you know, the directories is what tells the disk drive where to go. It says, okay, you need this PowerPoint or you need this keynote file. It points it to a certain location on the disk. And over time, as you work with many files that those, um, those directions get, you know, garbaged up. So for lack of a better term, and well, the directory is like an index to a disk. Okay. There you go. That's it. And so what, what disk warrior does, and there's some programs that take the directory and then they force the app or basically the drive to rebuild itself around the directory. So it's like taking a map and telling the roads to reroute themselves so they they match the map. Disk Warrior takes a different approach. It actually goes and finds everything on the disk and rebuilds the directory around it. At least that's what they told me at Macworld, and that's what I've always understood. So to use the book analogy, which I think works better for me than the, the roads and, and all, is Disk Warrior actually reads the book and creates the index, whereas some other applications read the index, rip out the pages to the book, and reorganizes them. Yeah, which is a lot of work and subject to error. So Disk Warrior does a great job of, of rebuilding it, and it also will go through and analyze your index to see how corrupt it is, uh, even if you're not having a problem. And you know, I run it as a, it's one of the few maintenance tools I do. I don't do it very often, maybe every 
six or ten really? months, I'll, I'll run it. But you'll get in there and you'll see that it is kind of messy, and then it'll rebuild the directories, and you're good to go. Uh, the only exception is it will not work with a PGP-enabled uh, drive, which you know is a problem on my laptop. But So I've had prop, uh, friends with disk problems, and quite often I've gone in there with Disk Warrior, and it has solved the problem. Right. Now, again, Disk Warrior is making some pretty significant modifications, so this is something you do not want to do unless you have a good, reliable backup, which I'm sure everybody has anyway. So, Of course. You know, and then the, especially. The other big disk application is Drive Genius, which is a little different. It's more of a, a tool built full of uh, ways to analyze and modify your disk. I think it may have some... Uh, directory repair functionality to it. I don't recall, but I know they have like defrag and they have some other interesting tools that you don't get with disk warrior. But now we actually talking about defrag brings up an interesting question that we just got on Twitter and I, I responded to it, but somebody asked, do you ever need to defrag your Mac? Which I guess means how much of these utilities and such that come with a multi-use program like drive genius. Do I really need to use? Yeah, well, with respect to the issue of defrag, I generally don't do it. I don't think you need it on a Mac. I did it when I reviewed Drive Genius, and I just could not tell that it had made any improvement. And I've heard all these rumors about, you know, the magic stripe on the on the Mac uh, where OS 10 builds in the most frequently used files in a certain location that's easier for the drive to get to. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I have also uh, read how Mac OS 10 does its own degree of defragging uh, but, on the fly. Yeah, but you know, I've just never really noticed that there was a problem. I think if you work with really large files and you have limited space on your drive, there may be some benefit to defragging. And I don't want to be the last word on this. I'm not an expert on this subject at all. But uh, I've never bothered to have a regular defrag routine on my Mac. And, and unless you're having a big problem and you've identified it, as related to this type of disk performance, I probably wouldn't bother. I tell you, the only time I have defragged, and it wasn't my Mac, it was an external hard drive that I was trying to repartition on the fly. And it needed to defrag it because it needed to consolidate the data so that it could split the drive the way that I wanted to and have enough free space on one side or another of the data. So that's really the only time I've I've used defrag. And now that I've got my lightning quick SSD drive in my, in my uh, MacBook, I will never consider defragging because that's just the whole defeats the whole purpose. So SSD drives don't need any kind of defragging. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole point is uh, there is no seek time. There, there is no, no sequence. Yeah. There is no head right. and defragging. Um, actually would probably be counterproductive because you're, lifting the data and rewriting it and you know the the weakness of the ssd drive at least uh, what i'm reading is that you know uh, repeated write cycles will eventually kill sectors so why would you want to defrag it and you know write one more time or two more times when you don't need to right and i guess we should also throw out our general warning that defrag and although you say you do use disk warrior as a general maintenance tool i i would not consider these types of um, utilities for general maintenance. Let me run this once a week type thing. Yeah, I, I run Discware, like I said, very infrequently, but I will run it and uh, just have it run a report. And if things look like they're jumbled up, I'll go ahead and, and let Discware run the, the routine. 
It's a hundred bucks. You know, it's a hard to justify. I don't think I would buy it if I was just running my own Mac and wasn't yeah. I guess I was going to ask you: is this is this the type of thing that every Mac user needs, or every Mac user just needs to know somebody who has it? <laughs> Maybe it's the second, really. Yeah. But uh, and I think, frankly, if you take your Mac into the Genius Bar, I wouldn't be surprised if that's one of the things they do on their list too. Well, I'm told that the geniuses use Drive Genius, but I know a lot who swear by Disk Warrior. Yeah. I think they're really two different problems. Drive Genius, I'm sorry, Disk Warrior is perfect and pretty flawless in terms of dealing with these directory problems, but it doesn't really do anything else. Well, Disk Warrior is a one-trick pony. Yeah. But it's a Whereas, very good trick, and it's a very fast pony. Right. Drive Genius is kind of like you said, a utility belt that will do a whole bunch of things. So I guess if you're getting a little more desperate and you can't seem to solve the problem by yourself, the next step would be to call in the professionals. You know, it's really nice having the Genius Bar. I, I agree. I have had them from time to time resolve issues that I could not. And sometimes they know exactly what the problem is. I remember in 10.5, one of the later point updates, it caused all kinds of mayhem when I installed it. And it was very rare for me to have a problem with an Apple install, but, you know, I did. And I uh, I went over to the Apple store, and he knew exactly what the issue was. He says, yes, we've been having this. We're going to get it fixed. And, you know, in 15 minutes, he had everything running just fine. And, you know, it was so bad that I was thinking I was going to have to do something desperate. And, you know, it's just nice having that resource available. Right. Now, for people who don't necessarily live next to an Apple store or near enough that they can just go strolling and chat with a genius. What do you think about Apple care phone support? Uh, it's okay. I mean, I, I've never really needed it extensively because I'm fortunate to live close to a genius bar. I usually just make an appointment and go in. I much prefer to have a, a body right there. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I've had mixed results with Apple care. I have had Typically for me, Apple Care is just a means to, I've already troubleshooted this, now I need to prove to you that I've walked through the steps, send me a replacement, please. Yeah. But you know, um, there, there's, um, there's a science to using the Genius Bar as well. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all is, you want to make sure you make an appointment. Right. Don't just show up because these guys are busy, they're not going to have time to deal with you. And the second thing you, I always do is I print out a copy of my receipt or my warranty or whatever I have that I'm going to need to get these guys to work on it without sending me a big bill. The third step is always you want to make sure that you back up before you go, because if they take that computer and keep it, you're going to sign a little piece of paper that says you don't know whether you're going to get it back or not. And you never know if they're going to wipe the drive or whatever, and they're going to ask you if you've backed up. So make sure you back up. Right, and make sure that you're... You're backed up well. The other thing I do, and it's much easier to do with the Genius than it is over Apple Care, because the Genius you can actually pop open the computer and show them things. Um, is if I've done any of my own troubleshooting or maintenance, I tend to save a copy of my log files to say, "Hey, let me just show you that this is a recurring problem." Because you know, half the time when you have a problem that's intermittent, it does not re replicate itself when the Genius is touching your computer. Yeah, or even just bring the console file um, uh, if you've got a problem with external hardware. Like when I was troubleshooting my bad USB port, one of the problems I was having was when I was recording. So I brought my microphone in, and we were running tests in the Apple Store, and that really helped them appreciate that I wasn't crazy. 
Right. Bring all the peripherals in. If it's your printer, bring that in. If it's your mouse, bring that in. Um, whatever you can get to as closely as possible, replicate your setup. Definitely bring that in. Um, so, yes, Apple Care, well worth it. Yes. I mean, it's the only warranty I ever buy. I mean, I, I'm usually against those in store warranties or the product warranties, but Apple Care has paid for itself in my uh, life several times. I've had them completely replace a 17 inch MacBook Pro for me and uh, fix several computers that, you know, just we had issues with. I, I think it's, it's, I think it's a no brainer for the laptop. I think it's probably a no brainer for the iMac, but that's up to the individual. I always buy it for the iMacs too. My daughter has LCD a two and a half year old iMac that the power supply just died on and we took it in there. I'm sure that it paid for the Apple care right there. Oh, Absolutely. You know, another thing is, you know, this is just common sense and human decency. But when you go into the Apple store, don't be a jerk. You know, uh, those guys, they don't get paid a lot there and they're trying to fix the computers. And if you go in there and get all mouthy with them, you know, you're not going to go to the front of the line that way. That's for sure. Yeah, that's that's, I think, true and general good advice with anybody is politeness um what is it you you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar yeah politeness and persistence did you know that i live next uh, real close to the very first microsoft store i had seen that on your blog yes they're getting ready to build it down about 15 minutes from my house and i'm hearing all kinds of strange rumors from friends and associates at the apple store where microsoft is offering them huge amounts of money to go over and work as a guru I mean, they're, they're, no, really, they're they're offering a bunch of money. And like, how hard can it be? New can pave. Well, I don't know what they're going to do because the the benefit of the Genius Bar is that these guys are working with a limited set of hardware with a limited set of software. There's a you know there's defined parameters. I wouldn't say that we've covered every possible troubleshooting step in the show, but we've covered a lot of the major stuff in just an hour. Uh, you can't do that when you've got five or six different versions of Windows and every manufacturer making different sets of hardware. I mean, it's just such a different world. I don't see how the uh, consumers are going to be able to do anything but just bring their computer in and drop it off when it, it's going to have to get sent somewhere. Right. But uh, Well, you know, we'll see. I guess I'll have to report back. Yeah, definitely. Go, go in there and bug them. So as much as I love Apple Care, sometimes it's not an option. Sometimes you you've run out of your Apple Care, or you just screwed up and didn't buy it. But you may also have a more local option, and that I know in our area we at least have a couple of Apple certified specialists who, although they are not employees of Apple, are um, able to do warranty repairs um, and general troubleshooting. So that may also be an option. And when all else fails, what do you do? All else. You nuke and pave. Yeah. You, you revert back to the, the Windows state. And I don't think I have, in recent years with OS X, I don't think I've ever had to do this. Uh, I have. I had to do it once. Um, I mean, I've done it voluntarily. Oh, I've done it voluntarily, sure. I don't think I've ever had to do this in a crisis situation that I needed to resolve something. Yeah, when I had the USB problem on my on my MacBook Pro, they replaced the um, the logic board, they replaced the USB board, and they finally said, you know, you just have to nuke and pave, and I did that, and uh, so that was the third step, and I took the time to rebuild the whole computer, 
and these guys knew me because I'd been in there before. And, uh, and then I still had the same problem and that's what pushed them over the top that said, okay, give this guy a new computer. Right. And sometimes you have to do the nuke and pave. See, in, in your case, it doesn't sound like the nuke and pave actually helps you, but sometimes you have to do it kind of as proof that this isn't software related anymore. This isn't my data being an issue. Yeah. And like I said, sometimes it'll solve the problem and it's not that difficult a process. If you listen to the show, we did about setting up a new Mac. Right. That's true. So the last kind of thing that I want to touch that's not, I guess it is related to troubleshooting, but it's not any specific method is, um, you know, the Jerry Maguire line, help me help you (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) is help your tech support help you and kind of tips for getting tech support because I can tell you I am, and I am sure you are, as are most people who are listening to this podcast, the tech support for their family and for their network of friends. And as much as I love these people in my personal life, sometimes just dealing with their computer issues sends me over the edge. Um, And the thing that is probably my biggest pet peeve is that someone gives you a very generic problem. My email doesn't work. Yeah. Okay, what is it you want me to do about that? Well, you know, it's funny. I thought I solved this problem by, you know, switching to the Mac because, you know, nobody uses Macs. And then, because I was fixing everybody's PCs, and I said, hey, you know, I'm a Mac guy. I don't fix PCs anymore. I don't even remember, you know, something like Adaware, you know, virus something, you know, and they <laughs> got me off the hook. But then everybody started buying Macs, so I'm right back in business now. So I guess what we're we're talking about is what tools do you need in the toolbox if you're going to be the informal tech support guy? Right. Or gal. Or gal. Um, Well, let's see. Um, Good backups is definitely one, preferably a bootable backup, and preferably multiple backups. And I've said it before, but that's a condition for me. Uh, If somebody wants me to set up a new Mac – um, I won't do it unless they buy a backup drive. Right. And uh, I said, that's my fee. And that always makes it good because then when they eventually do have a problem, I can go over there and we, know, we always know we can restore if we need to. Right. Because it's, it's easy also to, um, while you're troubleshooting kind of in your, your overzealousness to correct the problem to make something worse by accident, and you have a little more confidence in doing multiple troubleshooting steps if you know you can always go back to the data. Yeah. Um, the other thing we already talked about, obviously, Apple Care is a good tool. Um, Apple Care does come with a version of Tech Tool, although I personally have never found it particularly helpful. Nor have I. So, um, another application that I really like, although as of the time that we're recording this show, is not Snow Leopard compatible is a little um, system utility called Apple Jacks. Have you used that? Yeah, it's really neat. It uh, installs in your system at the root level, so you can get in and run basic utilities even before it gets into OS X. Right. Um, the other thing that you always want to have handy are your system install disks. Or, um, in fact, this may even work with your little magic drive. I don't know, but I I hurt myself once. Typically, I have a rule that. I don't go on any extended trips without kind of my troubleshooting toolbox. And um, I went on a business trip that literally was one overnight stay. Maybe it was two. I think it was just one, though. And, um, of course, my hard drive picked that particular night to have a directory issue, and I couldn't do anything with it until I got home and got access to my system disks. 
Wow, you're pretty organized. I, I don't do that. But uh, I do use it when I go over to somebody's house to try and fix their computer. Um, and hopefully they have the system installed. Because if it's a family member and you know they're kind of flaky and we all know there's one of those people in our family, I just take <laughs> possession of the disks and I say, okay, here's your new Mac. I'm going to hold on to your install disks. And when you need them, let me know. I don't trust you to hang on to this to yourself. Yeah. Um, and then I guess you could kind of keep those also what we talked about, those general maintenance utilities, that Disc Warrior CD and so forth. Although, again, you need to be careful with this because sometimes, you know, especially people that were troubleshooting don't have the latest and greatest Mac and, you know, obviously make sure the version that you have is compatible with what they have. And, hey, there's not necessarily anything wrong with keeping old versions of those discs. You also want to ask them, uh, in addition to what have they done to their Mac, what has anybody else done to their Mac? Because you'd be surprised how often they say, oh, I had a friend um, over. And yeah, they... my grandson was over, and he was doing something in here. Yeah, exactly. And then all of a sudden, the the truth shall set you free. Right. So when you're at somebody's house troubleshooting, um, you know, I know it's a little disconcerting because they probably expect you to have all the answers and to come and magically make their computer work. Um, but I found more often than not, Google is my friend when I'm trying to troubleshoot these issues. Yeah, and like I said earlier, there are some specific techniques using Google that are very helpful. Um, a lot of people don't realize you can use Boolean search with Google. So you could type something, you know, like keyboard and Bluetooth and Mac, and it would get much closer than if you had just typed those three words independently. And uh, putting error codes and quotes always seems to help. I mean, whenever I can get an error code, it's kind of a relief because I say, okay, now I'm going to be able to get very close to the root of this problem with one search. Right. And people are surprised sometimes how quickly a Google search pops up and the first entry is the answer to their problem. And that kind of makes me roll my eyes a little bit is because, okay, before you bothered to bother me, did you even bother to Google it? Or yeah. is it just easier for you to email me than for you to try to search for the solution yourself? Yeah. Um, the Apple discussion boards also quite frequently are the top hits in my Google searches where I actually find resolution to issues. And you can also search those independently. Um, and I encourage people to participate in that. If, if you have a particular issue and you've searched the Apple discussion boards and cannot find a solution but find the solution elsewhere... Um, you know, help build the community and help build that database of knowledge and, and post the solution. Yeah, even if there's an existing thread and there's no solution posted, go back and answer the question. Right. It just takes a minute and, you know, you you got to pay it forward. One of my favorite websites that used to be a pay website that I had a membership to and now has recently gone free is Mac Fix It. They've changed their format a little bit, and I still think they're a very helpful website, although perhaps not as when they were fairly exclusive and you had to pay for membership. Um, but the Mac Fix It website is an excellent resource. I didn't realize they'd gone free. Um, I don't know if they have completely gone free or if they're phasing towards free, but I know they are. Okay. Um, and then obviously one of my favorite resources is your local Apple user group because typically those are uh, like-minded people. Some of them at least are going to be computer gurus uh, and can probably be a source of help to you. And I know my, my user group has a fairly active email listserv where people go back and forth with problems and solutions and um, different kinds of things multiple times a day. You know, I just attended my very first user group. In Did you? Just this past weekend. 
Uh, the, and how uh, did it go? The Orange County user group called Smog. It's a really nice group of people. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I got I gave a, a preview version of one of my Macworld speeches and uh, and got some good constructive criticism on it. And it was just fun being, you know, among the tribe. Right. You know, everybody there had their maxed out. And that was a lot of fun. I, I really would recommend it to anybody who hasn't tried it before. And then, um, obviously, we've already talked about the Apple Store as being an ideal resource, and then also Apple Care by phone. Um, if you don't have an Apple Store nearby and still can't find a solution, yeah, the uh, you know, and then the Apple Care over the phone, go to in the store. Just be ready when you go in there to try and explain your problem succinctly. And frankly, if you go in there and say, "Yeah, I did this, this, and this," even if you do just a few of the steps we've mentioned in the show you're going to have immediate credibility with a genius and it's going to allow them to, to get much farther, much faster with you. Right. And, and you need to give them all of the information. If you've done something that you're not quite sure you want to fess up to, um, that doesn't really help anybody solve your problem. And typically more often than not, it's going to come out through the general troubleshooting process. And you're going to have lost all credibility they'll figure it out. You know, if right. you've spilled something on your Mac, they're going to figure it out. So, uh, And more often than not, I mean, I, I'm sure you remember Allison's famous, I stuck a magnet to my 30-minute-old hard drive. I forgot about that, yeah. Yeah. And she went in, and she fessed up, and she said, I am the stupidest person to have ever walked the planet. This is what I did. And, you know, they took pity on her and said, here you go. Yeah. So... I don't know if she actually said that, so sorry, Allison. Um, and then the other thing, be persistent, but be patient. I mean, definitely be polite, um, but be persistent. And don't be afraid to ask, especially on telephone support, to be escalated to the next area or to the next level. Um, frequently, in fact, every time I have called Apple Care, it's never been the level one and mo- mainly never the level two tech who gets to where I need to get it's it because I've usually, you know, the level one guy is the restart and repair your permissions guy. And the level two guy is the clean your cash guy. And the level three guy is the, the person who can actually, you know, the engineer that can help you resolve some of your problems. So don't be afraid to be escalated. Um, and then this is a, a little more controversial advice I would guess, but um, sometimes you just get bad help. You know, sometimes people are human and, you get a bad call center, um, hang up and call again. Yeah, that's good advice. So I've most of, I have been thrilled with most of the support I have gotten from Apple, but uh, from time to time I'll, I'll get kind of a wacky call center or a wacky person that just is not on top of things. And I'm like, okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. Yeah, I'm just so fortunate to have all these Apple stores around me. I uh, the only time I think I've ever needed phone support was a uh, a bad battery, but you know, generally I just make an appointment. They're not that hard to get. You go in, you can actually talk to a human, and uh, and show them the the program right there. And if they need to keep it, they'll get it fixed. But if you're out, if you're close to an Apple store, I just strongly recommend going there over the telephone. Right. And uh, here's my my one little little Apple store tip. Um, I did not realize this, but most Apple stores have one-on-one training and Genius Bar appointments an hour or two before the store opens. 
So, for example, my local Apple store, I think, opened at 10 or 11 on Sundays, but their Genius Bar appointments actually started at 8 or 9, as well as their one-on-one training sessions actually started at 8 or 9. And as you know, if you've ever been into an Apple store, these places are pretty busy, they're pretty crazy, and I believe someone told me that the Genius is typically a lot 15 to 20 minutes per person, or otherwise they get behind schedule. So... Most people assume that the Genius Bar doesn't open until the store opens. So a lot of times, if there are those earlier, uh, I don't know about later, but definitely if there are those earlier appointments available, usually it can be a little quieter time in the store and usually an opportunity where you'll get um, a a little more one-on-one help before they have to move on to the next person. Yeah, I totally agree. I've done that as well. And going in before the Genius has two or three people standing around and other employees walking up to him and asking him questions while he's trying to troubleshoot you. It's just so much better to get them when they can actually focus on your problem. Right. Well, I and think- I've also learned that if you want something replaced, you go in at the last appointment of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It looks like hardware to me. We'll just replace it because it's five o'clock. Tell him you're not satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody told me that once, <laughs> but, uh, I've, I've generally been real happy and frankly, I prefer to, get the darn thing fixed. I'm not really going in there gunning for a new computer every time I show up, but uh, it is nice having someplace local that you can take it and get it fixed. As a contrast, uh, back in the dark days of PCs, I had a an HP one time, and I had bought the extended warranty. And they took that darn thing, and I don't know what they did with it, but I didn't get the computer back for three months. And oh my goodness! When they and got then it's it back, like you probably needed to buy a new computer by then. Well, it was it was maddening. And then when they got it, the problem was with the sound card. And when they got it back, it still didn't work. So literally, I just went to the computer store, bought my own sound card, and 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 replaced it myself. So it had all been for nothing. And and it was with that mindset that I was resistant to buy Apple Care when I switched over to Apple, but, um, I am a believer now. Right. So I think we've covered a lot of the troubleshooting problems. All right. Uh, that's, um, quite a, a bit of stuff and Hey, some of it may work. Some of it may not, but always good knowledge to have. Yeah. Maybe that's the last bit of advice is, you know, don't make yourself crazy over this stuff. There are, you know, solutions and people you can get help from and, you know, do your best, but after a certain amount of time, if you feel like throwing it through the window, maybe you've been doing it a little too long and just stand up and take a break or make an appointment somewhere. Right. All right. So we got some, uh, we're still getting feedback in on our security show, which I think was a couple of, was that a couple of episodes ago? Yeah. It seemed to have been a popular topic. Yeah. But the uh, feedback is still coming in. So Steve sent us an email revisiting the little snitch issue. And he said, I just listened to the episode where you discussed Little Snitch, and I thought you were a bit hard on the little guy. Yes, it's a pain to begin with in dealing with the permission request, but after a while they start to settle down. And as for guests, can't you just set the Little Snitch preference for off in the guest account? He says, anyway, I still believe that your power users should always have some way to monitor the outbound internet traffic. And as you know, there are less intrusive net monitoring alternatives for those who just want to keep tabs once in a while. And um, I actually had a, had a couple of emails exchanges with Steve on this Little Snitch issue. And my particular issue with Little Snitch is that I have a guest account on my computer that I use um, whenever I have guests over. If someone wants to check their email or hop on the web or, or do something, I don't let them do that from within my account. We do that from within a guest account. And I use the guest account built into Snow Leopard, so by default, it resets that account 
to a clean new state every time you restart. So the problem with that is I would disable little snitch and disable these notifications, but yet the settings would never hold because every time I restarted, the guest account would reset. And then my guests are dealing with all of these pop-up notifications because little snitch would never remember my preferences that I had already told it to allow this or deny this or ignore this or whatever. Well, according to Steve, in the more recent versions of Little Snitch, they've actually addressed this issue. Um, and I will admit this is something that I personally haven't addressed in probably four or six months. So um, I will check out the most recent version because that was my biggest complaint. And if they've resolved that, uh, then I can be pretty happy with it. Yeah, I know computer users that are big advocates of Little Snitch. And these are people who know a lot about their Macs and... Uh, uh, I don't want to take anything away from it, but it did wear me down. So I just, Well, the idea is, is that it's going to wear you down at first, but once you get it set, it should be set. Yeah, and I think for me, the ultimately just comes down to I'm just not aware of enough of a risk to justify dealing with that whole process. And as soon as I am aware of a risk, I'll, like I said in the show, I'll be the first to run back to reactivate my license. Right. Um, Angel wrote about EFI and open firmware passwords, which we didn't cover in the security episode, but I thought it was a good point. Um, uh, he sets an EFI firmware password, which, uh, allows it's, it's down at the bottom level. So it makes it a little harder for people to get into it. Uh, when, a little bit harder, but not impossible. Yeah. But it's not a bad idea. And, uh, uh, I thought that was something we probably should have covered. So it's out there now. There you go. Um, Todd emailed us regarding campus network security and Todd is going back to school and he says that obviously he understands that open Wi-Fi is bad as far as security goes, but a lot of college campuses especially use these open Wi-Fi networks. He says, I'm going, getting ready to go back to school after many years off and I'm curious to know if the Wi-Fi at universities is insecure too and if so, how can I protect myself while on school grounds? He says he does have a Verizon EVDO card, but once he goes back to the student lifestyle again, he won't be able to afford it. And then he also asks, does OpenDNLs help at all if you're on a laptop, and does it work through EVDO and Verizon? Um, And I think OpenDNS, we said, is a show that we're going to do in a future, Um, so we definitely still have that on the list. I can tell you just from personal experience, I haven't used OpenDNS with all of these laptop cards and all, but... I have had experience with someone who used OpenDNS on a Sprint laptop card, and this was several years ago, so I don't know if it's still a current issue, but they did have some issues accessing certain sites, and something about the OpenDNS wasn't quite redirecting, but it seemed to be a Sprint issue. Um, So just be aware of that. And um, as far as Wi-Fi security on a college campus, I think it just goes back to the whole cost-benefit analysis. Um, Yes, if you're doing something on an unsecured page or sending something unsecurely on an open Wi-Fi network, I think you have to work under the assumption that it could be intercepted. Um, But the question is, what are you doing and how sensitive is it? And do you really care? Personally, um, I was very careful with what I did on my campus Wi-Fi network um, if I wasn't specifically on a secure site. So to me, it, it didn't really bother me all that much. And all of my mail and all of those passwords were going over SSL, so I was a little comfortable with that. But many campuses have uh, VPN options where you can VPN in through their wireless network, and my campus did as well. So 
once I was able to get that implemented and up and running on the Mac, uh, I VPNed into the network over the Wi-Fi, which was a little more secure. So those are a couple of options. And, you know, college, you know, and the college kids, there's some going to be some mischief makers, and they're going to be looking for doors to walk through. So just don't leave your doors open. Exactly, and definitely um, firewall up. It's kind of funny because my college, our computer lab, was very secure because there was no such thing as wireless. There you go. There were a bunch of toaster Macs with cables attached to the back of them. Uh, Greg wrote in about insurance and said, you know, uh, you mentioned insurance sources for MacBooks, but I didn't see in the show notes. Whoops, that's my fault. Uh, <laughs> do you have any that you recommend? Um, I use Safeware. It's at safeware.com. I, I don't know if I can recommend them. I mean, I pay the bill every year. I've never needed to make a claim and... So they've been very friendly while they accept my money. Um, I hope they'll be friendly if I ever need to ask for some back from them. But uh, they do specialize in consumer electronics, and I know now that they have iPhone plans as well. So you can check them out. I don't get any um, referral or anything from them. So, But you go ahead and check them out and see what you think. Um, yeah, the flip side of that, I I use my own personal insurance company. Um, the downside to that is they do not offer protection for the iPhone. They used to, but now specifically will not, I guess, because it became quite popular. Um, but for me, I insured my MacBook Pro with a $0 deductible for, I think, 48 bucks a year. It was significantly cheaper, I think, than the prices that I was being quoted by some of these online applications um, with no deductible. And it's people that I know and trust. I mean, these are people that I've filed claims with before. They're local people. There's a door that I can go bang on if, if they start harassing me or giving me issues. Um, so definitely don't discount your local folks. My insurance company specifically recommended, and there wasn't much of a price difference, instead of beefing up my homeowner's insurance or adding additional riders to my homeowner's policy to specifically cover some of my tech to instead get a separate policy because if you think about it, you know, having a stolen laptop is, is much more likely to happen, um, you know, than having a fire or a flood or a major issue with your home. And if you are going to file a claim, there is some advantage to having it on a separate policy so that if your policy is canceled or if your policy rates go up, it's just affecting that specific policy rather than your larger homeowner's policy. Yes. So, for what it's worth. Yeah. Well, I think we kind of went over this ground in the last episode, but uh, Safeware is the one I use. If my homeowner's insurance would cover it, I would probably be doing that instead. Oh, my turn. Um, the next email we got is from Jose on using LaunchBar instead of services. And as David mentioned in our, our last episode, a lot of the things that I was using services for could also have been done through LaunchBar. So really six to one, half dozen the other. Actually, Jose took it another level up. I thought it was pretty cool. He set it up where it launches a series of programs with one command. So if he wants yeah. to program, he, he launches Xcode, Interface Builder, Terminal, and OmniWeb uh, all at once. And he probably, if he's doing through um, AppleScript, I'm certain he can set up the window location on the screen. Sure. Um, I thought and that was a really good idea. I'm going to post on it at Mac Sparky or Mac Power Users or something. I'm going to develop some of my own. And I'm not sure if I'm going to build into a service or into a launch bar script. You can do it either way. But that is, I thought, a really good idea. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to playing with that. Right. And he said he had a bunch of different... Um, 
scripts that he he keyed out depending on what he was doing. He had one for programming, one for web development, and one for just you know what we would consider more general stuff. And we had our first uh, audio comment from George Starcher, who also oh, good friend. Uh, yeah, he is over at the typical Mac user, and I'm going to see him next week. I'm going to Blog World. You guys are all going to Blog World, and I'm stuck working. Yeah. Well, I'm just lucky because it's close. I'm I'm only going out for one day. I'm going to miss most of it, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing all my friends. And wish you would be there. That would be great if you could make well, it. Well, I will catch you all at Macworld because yes. I did just buy my Macworld ticket. So let's listen to what George has to say. One thing about those phone home apps to find your lost or stolen laptop, if those are running, then they probably have access to your data too, unless you're using something like File Vault. They can, or some other encryption where you're keeping all those files encrypted even while the Mac's up and running. Because if you're using full disk encryption, they can't even get in for the OS to run, which is required for those apps to run in phone home. So it's a trade-off, you know. I either willing to lose my laptop and just file an insurance claim, knowing my data is pretty much inaccessible, versus there's a chance they can get to my data, but I might get the unit back. So it's just a trade-off. See ya. I think George makes a good point. Uh, if someone can uh, get into your system, I mean, they'd have to get into your system before they'd activate that security. And in my mind, that's just one more reason to look at an insurance policy and not bother with LoJack. Right. And, and here's another issue. We had talked about Little Snitch earlier, is I actually installed Laptop LoJack. I got a, a demo version to use. I Actually, I think it was at Macworld. And um, figured, hey, what the heck, I was getting ready to go on a trip. I had this copy that I hadn't installed. Why not? Let's see what this is all about. So I installed Laptop LoJack. Everything went great, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it periodically tests to see if it has a connection. And guess what happens? Little Snitch popped up and blocked it <laughs> and said, Laptop LoJack is attempting to call out. Do you want to allow this? And I was like, oh, great. Sometimes one plus one does not equal two. Yeah, so I, I did set it to always allow, and um, who, who knows how that would have how that would have worked if somebody had actually gotten a hold of my Mac. But but yeah, it's a it's a good point, and I I would rather I don't know. I mean, obviously, I would like to have my laptop back, but I would rather know that my data is safe than have my laptop back. I think. Yeah, agreed. I I would uh, I'd be much happier knowing that they couldn't get into my data than I could find out where they are at. Right. Okay. Well, I think we've got to the end of another episode. Yeah, this one's been a little little longer than normal, but that's okay. Um, we've gotten a lot of great email recently, and I just wanted to um, thank everybody for sending that. I have finally achieved inbox zero. I've I'd been behind for several weeks with my emailing, so I think. Everyone who sent me a message now has a reply, so sorry for the delay. Feel free to fill the inbox up again. And once in a while we get emails that don't give us feedback on a show, but just tell us how much they like the show or don't like the show. But uh, I really like, like the, the emails. like the former that, better than the latter. Yeah, exactly. Once in a while uh, we get one of those, and I just wanted to tell all of you we really appreciate that, and thank you for the positive reinforcement and uh, constructive criticism as well. Uh, it always makes me feel good. It's This is my cheap therapy, and when I get something nice from a listener, it always makes me uh, happy that I'm doing this and kind of reinforces all the fun we're having together. 
Right. And another way that you could send us some positive reinforcement that we always like is in the forms of iTunes reviews and iTunes comments. Um, those comments directly relate to our visibility and um, they play into the iTunes algorithm in terms of what podcasts get featured and what don't. And especially with the new interface in iTunes 9 where it makes it a little more difficult to find some content um, those comments are even all the more important. So if, if you like the show, if you don't like the show, that we'd prefer that you like the show, um, definitely would appreciate uh, your iTunes love. Yes, and we're going to have our next show, and we've already decided the topic. It is going to be GTD Smackdown. Task Manager t- Smackdown. Task Manager Smackdown. Okay, I guess GTD is a philosophy rather than an application. Yeah. We're not going to be all about GTD, but we are going to talk about our task managers. And uh, I'm going to call it an advanced course because we're not going to waste time talking about all all the various applications out there. Um, I'm an OmniFocus geek. Katie's a things geek. Yep. So we're not going to talk about stickies? I don't want to go there. Let's just go (laughs) straight into it. All right. And if there are other task management applications that we've missed, um, of course, you can always contact us and send us information about your favorite task management application of choice. Uh, The easiest way to do that is to send us an email to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. That will go to both David and I, and you may get a reply from one of us. You may get a reply from both of us. Very rarely you'll get a reply from neither of us, though. Yes, and uh, you can also contact us through Twitter, and we are Mac Power Users on the Twitter stream. And if you want to be like George Starcher and you want to send us an audio comment, uh, any standard audio file will work. You can send that to the feedback at Mac Power Users account. Keep it a reasonable file size. We don't need AIFFs or anything like that. And a lot of people are having success with this voice memo app on the iPhone, using that to record up audio feedback and emailing it straight off. Yeah, that works just dandy. I think that's how George did that one. I think it was. So, all right. Well, there's everything you ever wanted to know and more about troubleshooting. And coming up in a couple of weeks, it will be the task management smackdown. I look forward to it, Katie. I do. I think I may be a little out of my league, but we'll see. We'll we'll see what becomes of it. I don't know. If if you want to hear a spoiler, I think that they're both great apps, but I agree. I definitely have a favorite. Different apps for different people and. Um, you know, find out which works best for you. And I'll tell you, if you want a little preview, both Omni Outliner and Things do offer free demos. So feel free to take advantage of that and start playing around in advance of our show. Yes. Okay. See you then, Katie. Talk to you later, David.